0: We're continuing in our study of Revelation for those um, of you who've not been with us the last few weeks. This um, uh, study now is, in, uh, is of the tribulation, that is the Lord's judgment, end-time judgment of the, um, uh, the wicked uh, on the earth. Three Sundays ago, we, um, we heard about uh, trumpet judgments. The um, the fifth trumpet that sounded uh, initiated uh, locusts emerging from the abyss, from the bottomless pit, with the power to um, torment um, men and women. They had uh, the power of scorpions, and um, it's just kind of an unimaginable um, terror. Hollywood uh, does a pretty good job with other things, but um, this is just uh, just beyond uh, beyond our imagination. Then uh, the sixth trumpet sounds; an army of horsemen, two hundred million strong, um, kills a third of mankind. What's God doing? Well, He's um, in His mercy. He's uh, He's shaking His rebellious creatures from their stubborn unbelief. There will be those. Who come to him during the tribulation who would have come to him no other way. And so he's using these last judgments not just to to judge the wicked, but also to extract that last bit of devotion, that last bit of uh, faith, trust, belief uh, from wicked mankind. And he does so, it's successful. And then last Sunday, we looked at nine prominent characters in the tribulation. Last week's study is going to help us uh, with our understanding this morning. Also, last week, Don, I believe you emailed out a copy, a PDF file of uh, 30 30 uh, characters in the uh, book of Revelation with uh, cross-references. So if you haven't received that yet, ask Don to email a copy. This morning, we're looking at events leading up to the seventh Trumpet. In this chapter, as um, as in previous chapters, the apostle is uh, recording. He's describing. He's uh, reporting what he sees and hears. His vision, John's vision, is nineteen hundred years past, but the events that he describes are yet future. The purpose of John's prophecy is not intellectual pursuit. We're not here to fill you with, um, with facts and uh, historical data. It's not to satisfy your curiosity about end times, but rather as C. Ernest Tatham wrote in his um, Emmaus Course Bible Prophecy, he said, uh, knowledge of the prophetic future is furnished us so that we may live in the light of it. Okay. Its aim, therefore, is to shed light of the future on our present conduct so that we might be molded accordingly. And then he quotes 1 John 3:3 everyone who has this hope in himself, uh, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we're expecting, we're anticipating that you're going to make changes in your life to, uh, to coincide to be molded to uh, what the Lord desires uh, from the preaching of His Word. Um, Let's turn to Revelation 3, Revelation chapter 3, uh, Revelation chapter 10, we're further along than that, (laughs) Revelation chapter 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it the earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be no uh, that there should be delay no longer but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he is about to sound the mystery of God should be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter, and he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. We'll look at our chapter this morning under uh, four headings, uh, verses one through four, is our introduction to another mighty angel. Second, uh, verses 5 through 7, the mighty angel's proclamation. Third, instructions regarding the little book. And then fourth, the Apostle John's compliance and the angel's commission. And we'll make application to those uh, uh, as we have time. Well we're introduced to uh, what John writes as another mighty angel. Show show a slide, if you would, Luke. Artists have struggled to illustrate what John describes in his visions. That's hard to see. Um, Thank you. But um, we, thank you. Um, We see here uh, this artist's rendition shows that the... um, the mighty angel is clothed with a cloud. He uh, has a rainbow on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Who is he? If John's description excite your thoughts of the Lord Jesus, you're, you're, uh, you're doing well, but um, in spite of his awesome appearance as an angel, Don presented strong evidence last week that this is not the Lord Jesus. What, um, what he is is an angel who's been given great power and authority. What are the evidences against this mighty angel being the Lord Jesus? Well, um, it's, he's another angel. That word in the original means another after the same kind, after the same sort. So there are others like him. There was no, there was no one like the Lord Jesus. And so the introduction of another mighty angel shows that um, he's one among others. Secondly, um, people argue, well, it's a theophany. It's a, a pre-incarnate. Well, it's like the Old Testament where we had appearances of the Lord Jesus, um, in the flesh before his birth, okay? So, yes, he appears in the Old Testament in these theophanies, but nowhere in the New Testament is he, uh, does he appear um, as a theophany. A third of uh, 50 titles of the Lord Jesus in his revelation, he's not called a mighty angel. Fifty titles, not one of them is um, a mighty angel. The, um, the angel, we'll see, makes an oath, and um, if the Lord Jesus were to make an oath, he'd make it by himself, as illustrated in Hebrews 6.13. Fifth, uh, the angel came down from heaven, and we know from our... Uh, Chronology, our timeline, our scripture that the Lord Jesus doesn't return until the end of Revelation. So this is not an intermediate return of the Lord Jesus. And then uh, we'll add a sixth to uh, last week's uh, evidences. John Walford writes in his um, commentary, Revelation, he says, Though the angel is presented as one having great majesty and power, there is no clear evidence that his function or his person is more than that of a created angel, to whom has been entrusted great authority. So we don't know that uh, other angels don't look uh, this the same way. Other mighty angels. So there are evidences. Um, so let's answer the question: Who is the mighty angel? Don answered it last week. He's a mighty angel. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Don. Well. The angel is important, and um, he has uh, his position, uh, his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, implying his power and authority over all the earth, and John repeats this position of the angel twice in this chapter. All that we appreciate of the angel's importance is focused on what is open in his hand, which is the little book, okay? What is the little book? Is it the seven-sealed scroll of Revelation 5? Why not? Carlene's shaking her head. Well, the scroll of chapter 5 is is, uh, unrolled, and as it's unfolded, it um, reveals a judgment with the breaking of each seal. This book is open. The little book is open. The little book and the scroll of chapter 5 have different names in the original. The Lord doesn't, uh, doesn't call them by the same name. So these are evidences that, no, we're dealing with a separate, uh, a separate book. The angels cry in... Um, Verse three is uh, a loud voice uh, as, uh, as when a lion roars. How does a lion roar? He, lo- he roars with authority. <laughs> it's an arresting roar. If you were to hear the, uh, the roar in the wild, you'd, uh, you'd pay attention to what, uh, what he, was, he was roaring. Responsively, seven thunders speak and they speak in a language that uh, apparently John understands because he starts to write what, uh, what the voices said. But the vo- a voice from heaven commanded him, do not write what you heard. The purpose of John's vision in heaven, this, uh, this book of Revelation, was to record what he, what he heard and saw and to uh, convey this to the church. And yet here we have the Lord saying, um, do not write. What this suggests is that the Lord has a personal revelation for his prophet. It reminds me of the um, tremendous privilege that the Lord gave Moses after his delivery of the Ten Commandments to Israel. We could read in uh, in, uh, Deuteronomy 5, God saying to Moses, Go and say to them, that is the children of Israel, Return to your tents, but as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them. Send Israel to their tents, but you stand here by me. The Lord offers intimacy. He offers a special closeness to his servant, What an honor to be counted among the Lord's servants, his prophets. We'll see in the verses that follow that John is more than a passive observer. He is an active participant in God's revealing the end time events. Well, that's the introduction to the mighty angel. And uh, the mighty angel makes a proclamation in, in verse 5. He um, He's standing on the sea and on the land, and he raises up his his hand to heaven. It's a characteristic gesture of one making an oath. We we see it in Abram, um, in his oath to the king of Sodom. In Genesis 14, 22, uh, Abram raises his hand in an oath to the king. We see it in Deuteronomy 32, 40, the Lord to Israel. The Lord raises his hand as a gesture of authority and the importance, the weight of the message, the oath. So in verse 6, the angel swore by him, and he selects two attributes of God uh, in his oath. He says, uh, him who lives forever and ever, uh, counted five times in the book of Revelation, John uses this phrase, um, uh, the, uh, describing the eternity of God, the changelessness, the um, uh, God, the everlasting Lord. And then he, um, he describes the Lord as the one who created heaven and the things that are in it, earth, and the things that are in it, the sea, and the things that are in it. What does that tell you? As a creator, he is also the owner. He owns what he creates. You own what you create. And he's not only owner, but he's sovereign because he has created everything you see, everything you are, he's created, and he owns. What does the angel proclaim? He says, there should be delay no longer. The King James is a little confusing here um, because the translator uh, wrote um, that there should be time no longer. But um, really, the, uh, the meaning here is that there would be delay no longer. In other words, time's up. Time has run out. The end has come. What would be a reason for any delay in God's program of judgment, accomplishing his eternal purpose? We have one reason in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord in his mercy is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. He wants to draw uh, sinners to himself. He wants to save. He wants to populate heaven. Um, with redeemed sinners. And so that's, um, that's the reason for the delay, and the angel uh, proclaiming God's will says there will be delay no longer. That's it. He says in verse 7 that the mystery of God will be complete, will be finished, and he, um, he says that um, at the beginning of that verse, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, Pentecost writes in his, his commentary, Things to Come, he says the indication is that the seventh trumpet shall sound over a continued period of time, probably for the duration of the judgments that fall under it. That's awesome. Would, this, would the trumpet sound continually through the seven uh, bowl judgments. It would be an eerie sound in heaven, perhaps uh, warning like a fire alarm or a tsunami alert, this uh, blare, this blast of the trumpet through uh, the days, weeks, um, uh, months of the um, seven bowl judgments. Well, the days of his sounding, uh, what is the mystery of God that's to be finished? We've kind of hinted at it, but um, Bill McDonald writes in his commentary the mystery of God is God's plan to punish evildoers and to usher in the kingdom of his dear son. I was um, talking with a coworker um, many years ago and correcting him for, for blaspheming the Lord's name or for uh, mocking the Lord. And uh, I said, you know, the Lord will judge you for that. And he, um, he, with a sweep of his arm, he said, well, why doesn't the Lord judge all the wicked? And I said, it's not time. The angel says, it's time. The mystery of God is the full manifestation of His power, His majesty, His holiness. Habakkuk writes, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The mystery of God, think of all the unfulfilled declarations God made to His Old Testament prophets, all those outstanding um, prophecies. Prophecies of God establishing his kingdom on the earth. This is the mystery that will be finished. The um, mystery of God is the end of mankind's willful ignorance and irreverence toward him. The time is up. What would we do without the prophetic ministry of the Apostle John or of Paul or of Daniel. Amos prophesied um, in uh, his uh, letter uh, 3, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he said, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion is roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who, who can but prophesy? And so, The Lord uses his his prophet in sounding uh, the finish, the completion of his mystery. Verse 8, the the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again. And we we see here instructions regarding the little book. The first instruction is uh, by a voice from heaven. And uh, the voice instructs John um, to go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel. So um, John goes to the angel, and he gives a second instruction regarding the book. He says, give me the little book. And the third instruction is from the angel to John, and he says, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And so in, um, in verse 10, John complies with the angel's instruction. He took the little book and he ate it. And John's experience, he records, is that it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but um, his stomach became bitter. We can interpret the the event, we can interpret the um, experience of John. It's fairly obvious that the little book is the Word of God, or a portion of the Word of God concerning the end times, concerning God's judgment. What does it mean to eat? To eat is to take in nourishment. It's not enough to hear God's Word. We must internalize it. We must make it our own. We must apply it, believe it, act on it. The Lord's prophet should have been appropriating for himself God's Word during the whole of God's revelation. And here we see a graphic picture of it. God tells uh, um, John to eat the scroll and he ate it. To eat is to assimilate. It's a um, 50-cent word, meaning that um, the, the things that you eat become part of your body, become part of yourself, and this is what we're to do with God's word. We're to make it uh, so applicable. We're to make it so, uh, so real, so true that it becomes a part of us, okay? This was Jeremiah's experience in Jeremiah 15:16. He says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. God's word was the cause for Jeremiah's joy. What um, do you have for your spiritual breakfast this morning? Uh, Jeremiah says, um, your words were found and I ate them. Did you eat God's word? Did you consume? Did you enjoy? Did you assimilate? Did you make God's word your own? What was for breakfast this morning? Ezekiel had an experience eating God's word. Let's turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 2 because this parallels and uh, I believe it uh, illustrates really uh, John's experience, Ezekiel chapter 2. God sent Ezekiel to minister to the unbelieving Jews in the Babylonian captivity about the year 600 B.C. And so uh, God is going to commission Ezekiel in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He says, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. God reveals to Ezekiel that he's got a message for him and that the recipients of his message are going to be resistant. They're going to be rebellious, hard going. And God instructed Ezekiel to eat the scroll that he would give him just as he instructed the apostle John. Verses 9 and 10, we learned something of the nature of Ezekiel's message. Now when I looked... There was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. What does this remind you of? Well, it reminds me of the book of Revelation, uh, lamentations and mourning and woe. In verse, uh, verse 3, Sorry, in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord tells Ezekiel, uh, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat the scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate, and my mouth was like honey in sweetness. It's not enough for Ezekiel to hear God's word. He, um, he does tell Ezekiel to hear, but he also says that I want you to take my word to heart. I want you to, uh, to bring it into your uh, understanding and your appreciation and your life. To eat is to allow the message to have its effect in our lives. That's before we say it to others, before we speak it. Allow the word to be a burden to weigh heavy upon us and apply the truth to our own hearts before seeking application in other hearts. We sang uh, the words in our hymn this morning, more about Jesus in his word, holding communion with my Lord, making his vo- hearing his voice in every line, making each faithful saying, mine. God wanted that in Ezekiel. He said, uh, um, he said to um, take that to his heart, take that in his heart. We find that um, in verses 4 through 9, the Lord warned Ezekiel of the impudence and the hard-heartedness of his hearers. Like speaking to a stone wall. The ministry of a prophet is difficult and operates on a bitter stomach. In verse 10, the Lord said to Ezekiel, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears, and go. Get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. So here's a, here's a good definition of eating again. It's, um, it's the, that he would receive them, his word, into his heart. God wants his, his prophet to receive them into his heart. Well... Um, God would find one recipient for his word and the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel went to the captive children of Israel and he did so in bitterness and in the heat of his heart, that is, anger. In verse 14 we read, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary, he said, "The prophet was overwhelmed with grief for the sins and miseries of his people and overpowered by the Lord and his message. I believe this is um, <clears throat> what it means to be um, to have the bitterness of um, of his stomach, was to be overwhelmed with the grief of, um, uh, of his people, the miseries that they brought upon themselves. What was John's experience? Well, he, uh, the source of John's joy was seeing the mystery of God completed. It was the vindication of God's justice, of his righteousness, of his patience. That was a joy for the Apostle John. He enjoyed seeing, finally, uh, God uh, manifesting his, uh, his splendor, his majesty. But um, what was John's bitterness? It was seeing the wrath of God poured out on impenitent souls. It was like they were totally unresponsive. They just didn't, uh, they didn't heed what, um, uh, what God was doing. There were judgments of plague and sword and and poisonous locusts. That would have caused John real, um, real anguish. There were men hiding in caves and rocks, crying out for death instead of for the Lord's mercy. This was bitterness for John. John's message was not pleasant to himself, and he realized it wasn't going to be pleasant for others either. Additionally, I believe that John sympathized with the pain of the earth-dwelling, Christ-rejecting, hell-bound sinners. John could, um, could see where they were headed and he felt pain for them. What about you? Are you one for whom we should sympathize? Are you one for whom we see the end as, uh, as one of pain and judgment? Before God begins his end-time judgment, his tribulation, he will rapture his saints. He will take them to glory. And you, if you're without Christ, will be left alone, without witness. Not only so, but you will enter the tribulation, as we've uh, described these past months. And Scripture warns that you'll have no further opportunity to trust in him. Oh, what emptiness without the Savior, mid the sins and sorrows here below. And eternity, how dark without him, only night and tears and endless woe. What, though I might live without the Savior, when I come to die, how would it be? Oh, to face the valley's gloom without him and without him all eternity. Jesus has already paid for your sins in full, but you won't enter into the benefit of that until you receive him as Savior and Lord. And so I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord. You have opportunity today. And we have no guarantee. We have no promise of tomorrow. And as you trust The Lord Jesus, you then can sing with the saints, Oh, the joy of having all in Jesus. What a balm the broken heart to heal. Ne'er a sin so great, but he'll forgive it, nor a sorrow that he does not feel. If I have but Jesus, only Jesus, nothing else in all the world beside, oh, then everything is mine in Jesus, for my needs and more he will provide. Will you trust him today? Returning to the Apostle John's experience, we realize that the Lord is preparing John through the, uh, through the eating of the scroll, the, the little book. John is preparing him for future revelation, for things to come, things which are not easy to digest. In verse 11, the angel commissions John. He says, um, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John must prophesy again. We've we've still got uh, 11 chapters to go, 12 chapters. What does does John mean? What does the angel mean again? Pentecost uh, comments on this verse. He says that John outlined the first half of the tribulation period under the seal judgments the second half under the trumpet judgments and closed the period in uh, chapter 11 with the return of Christ to reign. Between the sixth and seventh uh, trumpets, the angel told John to prophesy again, that is, a second time. Therefore, beginning in chapter 12, John surveys the tribulation a second time, placing emphasis on those individuals who play so important a part in the events of the 70th week. So John must prophesy again. And he says you must prophesy. Quoting the prophet Amos again, the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The the Lord's truth compels us to speak. In conclusion then, as an application to today's message, we who live in the light of the prophetic future have responsibility to communicate that, uh, to warn others. Is your heart burdened? Is your stomach made bitter as you contemplate the uh, thought of friends and family and neighbors uh, going to a Christless eternity? The urgency of God's revelation compels us to preach. Lord, we thank you uh, this morning for your uh, blunt uh, honesty, for um, telling us like it is. We have no excuse uh, for silence with um, such a message, um, such a uh, a future uh, ahead. We thank you that you'll rapture your believers um, in advance of this. Um, but our hearts go out to those who are not trusting in you. We, we pray for that person this morning who, um, who has resisted you until today. And uh, we pray that you'd impress these truths, this vision of John, on the, on the disobedient heart and allow that person to realize uh, his or her guilt and the penalty that he or she must pay, and that there's free salvation in Jesus. And um, to trust in him for that salvation today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.